try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. And uh, since Rob decided to disagree with me last week, I fired him. No, I'm playing. I'm totally playing. Rob took the week off to be with his family. And so I've invited a very special guest into the airwaves, as it were, uh, with me. And that is my father, Tim Hag. What up and shalom, Dad? Hey, I uh, I don't think I can fill the shoes of Rob, but um, I'm here, and I'll do the best I can. Yeah, I noticed that the uh, chat room is, is uh, rather light today, which is fine, but uh, my dad suggested that maybe it's because Rob's not <laughs> not on the air today. Everybody decided uh, it wasn't going to be a, a good week. Yeah. All right, well, what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room, and what up and shalom to everybody listening at home, whether you're listening live or you're listening via the podcast or YouTube. Um, we're going to have an interesting day today, and that's because basically all we're doing is a Q&A with my father. And <laughs> if you don't know, my father, Tim Hag, is the president and CEO, as it were, of Torah Resource and Torah Resource Institute, which happens to be the sponsor of and producer of this show. The, this show is produced by Torah Resource. At our programming desk is Gary Springer, and uh, our web stuff is all ran by a Mark Randall. And as I said, Torah Resource produces The Rob and Caleb Show. You can find all sorts of free resources at TorahResource.com, and school uh, registration is now open. So you can go to TorahResourceInstitute.com and learn how to take classes, online classes, at Torah Resource Institute. And my father is one of the uh, teachers at Torah Resource Institute, among many other hats that he wears. And so I thought that today would be a good day to pick the brain of Tim Hag. And so I asked for different questions from people online, and we were given some. I don't know. Should we dig right into this? Yeah, I, I think there's some good questions here, uh, and maybe questions that others have asked and uh, you know to themselves or been in a discussion where people have asked these kinds of questions, and maybe uh, we can give some insight from the scriptures on good answers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we should hit up before we get going, but I think you know, one of the one of the things that when you mentioned that one of the things that I've been working on. Um, for upcoming lectures is this question of how we interpret the Bible. And I just I just want to put a plug in here for people listening to to take seriously how we interpret the Bible, because even though we make uh, believe the Bible to be uh, inspired uh, and the authoritative word of God, we believe that the canon of the of the scriptures uh, includes the what we now know as 66 books and uh, that these form the basis for our uh, all matters relating to our faith and to our halakha. Yet, if we allow people to adopt various uh, bad forms of interpretation, they can take the, the Word of God and turn it to mean something it never meant, or even say that it doesn't have any meaning. So, uh, I just, I'm just, uh, my mind and heart are full of 
this this very issue, and we see it so often in the messianic uh, movement, especially teachers on the internet and various places, where they're using a, a method of interpreting the Bible in a way that really undermines its obvious and clear meaning, and so uh, lead people astray. I just I hope that people take seriously. Uh, what we call a historical grammatical interpretation, and that's of course what we'll be using as we answer these questions. So, with the uh, with the chat room, I should say that even though we have a light crowd today in the chat room, uh, this will be somewhat interactive. Now we're on like a like a thirty or a forty five second delay, so you're not hearing us right when we're talking. But at the same time, if you put your questions or your comments into the chat room, then uh, we will try to address ones that I think are pertinent at the time. Okay, so let's start. We have, uh, when when I was preparing for this show, I thought, okay, well, this show is going to be about 15 to 20 minutes long. And every time I think that, we end up going like an hour and a half. So <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how, uh, we'll see how this goes. First question that we have is the odd letters in the Torah, large, small, broken, etc. What is their history? My online researching has not helped me too much. Do we know when they first appeared? I've heard they go back to Moses, but I find that unlikely. An example would be the small Aleph at the end of Vaikra in the first line of Leviticus. And this all has to do with the Masoretic text, right? Right. Uh, the, the Masoretes begin their work, uh, well... Uh, maybe sometime in the, the very late 5th century, but mostly beginning in the 6th century and on. Uh, two, two different houses, shall we say, developed two different uh, groups of scribes, which were called Masoretes. The Maz- Masora, uh, the term means uh, the tradition that's passed on. And so we, we don't think, we wouldn't say that the Masoretic text only began in the 5th or 6th century. But the 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 writing down of the vowels that the uh, Masoretes developed the the written vowels because remember in Hebrew vowels were not uh, generally uh, written down they were uh, uh, understood orally there were three or four uh, consonants mainly three consonants that were used to indicate vowels but nonetheless in the fifth and sixth centuries they they began to write the vowels down and why well because the uh, the Jewish people were being dispersed uh, throughout uh, the uh, lands of their uh, uh, other lands, the diaspora, and they were losing the uh, use of Hebrew. And so it was decided that in order to retain the proper reading and pronunciation of the Hebrew, there would have to be written vowels. Well, they also began to write down at the same time uh, various notes and uh, different uh, traditions with regard to the text so that subsequent generations of uh, scribes would be careful not to make what would have been common mistakes. Just as a quick example, if a word is spelled two different ways in the Tanakh or in the Old Testament, um, there would be notes to alert scribe to say, it's spelled this way in this text, but it's spelled a different way in another uh, area of the Tanakh. And so those kinds of notes were written down. And, and uh, at the same time, some traditions were in, began to be included into the text of the Tanakh, and that includes these different letters, some large, some small, some broken. The one that this uh, person uh, brings up as an example, the small aleph in the, in the first word of Leviticus, Vaikra, ends with an aleph, uh, and uh, in some manuscripts this aleph is written uh, small. 
And, uh, you know, there's various traditions as to why it was written small. But even when we come to a manuscript like Lenigradensis, which is dated uh, 1008 um, in the colophon and at the end of the manuscript, it indicates that it was written uh, in this at this time. It does not have the small olive. We can't check with the Aleppo Codex, which is uh, usually dated to 996 uh, of the Common Era, because the first uh, four books of the Torah uh, are missing. And as an aside, we hope they're going to be found, because it's very clear that they weren't burnt as the story went. They were taken. So uh, we don't know where they are. Uh, recently, all year and a half or two years ago, one page showed up in a collection, so we know that that there are, but at any rate, somebody's the, uh, hide, somebody's hiding them in a basement. In other words, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, or or, <laughs> or perhaps a collector has them, or perhaps they are in a collection of manuscripts that are yet to be cataloged. I mean, we we don't know. So the Vatican is hiding them, is what you're saying? <laughs> well, you know, I have to say this for the Vatican: they, the the the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, while we disagree vehemently with um, uh, theology and practice. Uh, there, they were used actually by Hashem to to guard and maintain manuscripts. We're thankful for that. But, so who knows what's uh, what's in the archives of the Vatican? But at any rate, um, uh, we don't find these kinds. Of, for instance, the small olive. We don't find that until uh, even later manuscripts. Now, some of the larger letters and smaller letters are found in the earlier manuscripts that we have. Interestingly, none of them are found in the uh, Qumran scrolls, as far as I know. I haven't checked every single one, but the vast majority of them are not found. So we know that it's a later phenomena because the Qumran scrolls are dated to the first century, uh, maybe second century BCE, up through the first century of the Common Era. And so uh, even those manuscripts which are dated to the first century of the Common Era during the time of Yeshua and his apostles uh, they do not contain uh, uh, any of these uh, large or small letters or broken letters, as far as I know. So wait, hang on just a sec. So could it, could could the, some of these smaller letters? It's not like they screwed up. These are obviously intentional, right? They are intentional. And the one that we most oftentimes see, because we're looking at it a lot, is in the Shema, in uh, Deuteronomy six four. You have uh, the ayin of Shema, the first word, and. Uh, the Dalit of Eid, uh, uh, Echad um, to be uh, uh, large letters. So you have an ayin and a Dalit, which stands for testimony or witness, if you put those two together. And uh, so there were some of those kind of things that were used kind of like we would do in, in our day. If, and now I know not everybody does this, but some of us do. When we're reading a book, we like to underline a line or we like to highlight it or maybe put a little mark in the margin saying this is something I want to be able to find again. So they put these large letters at the Shema because it was a text that was going to be regularly referred to and it could be easily found then. Remember that in the Torah scrolls, as well as in the uh, scrolls of the prophets and the writings, they were not broken up into chapter and verse. That happened uh, later. And, um, and so uh, in order to find something in the scroll, you had to read and read, uh, kind of skim to find the section you wanted. Um, and of course, m many of the scribes, or at least some of them, had much of the Tanakh memorized. Um, uh, but just as an aside, if we think, no, that's just a myth, that no one could do that. Uh, I had the privilege of sitting next to uh, Zion Ben Volkholder one time at the Society of Biblical Literature, 
uh, a friend and and uh, and colleague, I guess you could say, or at least a friend, uh, Marty Abeg. He and I were at seminary at the same time. Um, was helping uh, Dr. Volkholder uh, move from one lecture to another because Dr. Volkholder's uh, sight uh, was diminished, and uh, Marty had to go read a paper. So he asked if I would take. Dr. Volkholder to the next lecture, which I did. I sat next to him. It was a lecture on the Talmud, and um, he sat uh, very calmly and listened to the whole lecture, and when it was finished, he uh, corrected the uh, the reader uh, in four or five places where he had uh, misquoted the Talmud and or given the wrong reference. And I asked him, I said, hey, certainly you do not have the whole Talmud in memory. And he said, well, I can't say that I would be 100% accurate, but mostly, yes, I do. And so um, the idea that there could be uh, men and women who learn and memorize large, large uh, amounts of text is certainly uh, verifiable, and that seems to be the case with the scribes. So um, th this is the Masoretic text, is the tradition passed on from generation to generation, usually within families, uh, did the traditions vary at times? Yes, but they were extremely concerned about the accuracy of every letter, every space, and every word. And, uh, and so uh, these traditions began to be written instead of uh, given orally, uh, starting sometime in maybe the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries and on from there. Which means these letters are late. They're the product of the later scribes not uh, something that we find in the earliest manuscripts. We have questions coming in for, uh, on the chat room, so I suppose we should probably... I, I want to actually get back to the Masoretic text. Maybe we should do that first. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be best. Okay, let's do that first. Um, so the question would then be, the Masoretic text, it seems as though it's late, right? Uh, we don't have any copies of the Masoretic text until, what, 900s, 1000s, something like that? Yeah, we have. Yeah, there are a few scraps that are slightly earlier than that. There's a, um, a manuscript of the uh, uh, some of the prophets from the Cairo Geniza, uh, but it's not complete and uh, you know somewhat damaged in places. But in terms of complete codexes, that would be book form. Um, the earliest codex that we have is yeah, a uh, 10th century in the in the late 900s. Okay, so I mean. Uh... We certainly have um, uh, some people have argued, I should say, that the Septuagint is older than the Masoretic text because it, it was, uh, you know, 300 BCE. Mm -hmm. And so, didn't the rabbis change the text of the of the uh, the Masoretic text? Didn't they change it to um, to basically fit their own theology? And since the since we th think that the Masoretes changed the text, how reliable is the Masoretic text? Shouldn't we take something like the uh, Septuagint over the Masoretic text. Well, actually, this was uh, this became a, a, a point that was made by the rise of uh, of the rationalist um, thinkers in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s in Germany, when the documentary hypothesis and um, when critical scholarship began to say that one could not trust any of the scriptures, and in particular the uh, the Tanakh. And so one of the arguments was that the uh, the Septuagint diverges at times, um, and in some cases quite uh, quite great divergencies from the Masoretic text. And so the point was being made: since the Septuagint is clearly older, uh, we should uh, we should therefore 
uh, receive it rather than the, uh, the Masoretic text. First of all, let's let's be honest with ourselves. The un, until the Qumran scrolls were, were found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the oldest uh, copies of the Septuagint were really quite late. I mean, they were the same. Uh, you know, they were fourth, fifth century. Uh, the same manuscripts that we have of the apostolic scriptures in uh, uh, Codex and Indicus and Alexandrinus and so forth, uh, Vaticanus. So uh, it's not like we have copies of the Septuagint from, you know, the uh, th- uh, third and second centuries BCE. Okay, so uh, if you're if you're concerned about changes in the text when it's being copied over the centuries, you have the same you have the same issue going on with the Septuagint. But here's the clincher. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it uh, some of these uh, liberal, and I'm not saying just German, but uh, American and lib- uh, German liberal scholars, uh, who were dim- uh, diminishing or dismissing the accuracy of the Bible at that time, um, showed up with egg on their face when Qumran scrolls were finally published. Um, you can read about this um, in in plenty of. Uh, uh, Books, for instance, Emmanuel Tov's uh, major work on on the uh, text of of the Tanakh. Um, Emmanuel Tov, for instance, as an example, compares the Great Isaiah Scroll of um, Qumran, uh, which is complete and uh, which is in very good uh, shape and, and easily read, and compares it to the Masoretic text of Isaiah, and shows that the differences are almost all in matters of how spelling takes place. So when the liberals say, well, the Qumran scroll of Isaiah and the Masoretic uh, scroll or uh, text of Isaiah are widely divergent, you have to remember, it would be as though a Canadian were writing a text and using O-U to spell color, C-O-L-O-U-R, and a, and a U.S. Uh, a person writing the same sentence and spelling it C-O-L-O-R. From a textual point of view, that would be a difference, wouldn't it? But in terms of, of meaning, in terms of obvious... Uh, uh, word order and word uh, content, it's exactly the same. So the vast majority uh, are, are of these differences are there and uh, in that kind of a thing. And with Hebrew, as I think many of our listeners would know, you have what we call full spelling and, and uh, we have plane, uh, full and defective. And sometimes letters uh, are le- left out in the spelling of a word because th- they weren't really needed for the pronunciation. Now, are there differences? Yeah, there are a few differences. One that comes to mind is Isaiah fifty-three eleven, where it says, he will see and be satisfied. That particular sentence seems to not have an object for the verb see. He will see, will see what? Well, both the Septuagint and the Qumran scroll adds the word light. He will see light and be satisfied. Now, when we have two textual witnesses like that, uh, an old, the oldest one being the Hebrew of the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, then we have an option to say, well, perhaps a word got dropped out. So I'm not dismissing textual criticism done uh, with, with appropriate measures, but the idea that we should accept the uh, Septuagint uh, over the Masoretic text is just uh, uh, not well-founded. And I'll just say one more thing. And that is the Septuagint is not even. When you read the Septuagint translation, for instance, of Samuel, of First and Second Samuel, and you read uh, the Septuagint translation of Genesis, of Rashid, uh, you see that uh, whatever they were looking at in Samuel was 
Well, we don't know what in the world they were doing when they translated parts of Samuel because it's just very, very different. And the same thing is true in Jeremiah. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a whole chapter of Jeremiah that is put at the end of Jeremiah rather than, than where the Masoretic text puts it and where it obviously should be in terms of its context. So you can't take the Septuagint as a whole. I'll lastly say this. We certainly use the Septuagint as a a textual witness when we're doing textual criticism. We look to see what does the te Septuagint say, what does the Syriac Peshitta say, the Old Latin. We look at the Hebrew, and then we take all of these um, sources and praise the Lord that we have these sources. He's allowed these to remain so that we can compare. And inevitably, when we come up, as Emmanuel Tov would indicate, less than 10% of the differences, for instance, between Isaiah Qumran scroll and Isaiah Masoretic, less than 10% are, are issues that we really need to deal with, and none of them make a significant difference in interpreting what Isaiah is saying. Okay, so I have um, I have been reading some of these comments, and while they're good comments, I think that uh, I'm only going to use one of them. To uh, Sarah Wallace, the uh, question about James White and Bart Ehrman Bart, and the dating of uh, the old dating of and carbon dating of the Quran. I think we'd have to look into the different arguments before uh, we commented on it. So I'm going to go now to Andre's comment. He says, I have a question. In the open door, quote, open door video series by Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon, in which, in which the pronunciation of the sacred name is taught. In the seventh video, oh man, see this thing, hang on. I got to get back to it. In the seventh video, twice Keith Johnson, while recounting an event at 1235, states, quote, You think the Methodist can shout? You should hear the Karite when the Holy Ghost touches him. And at 2220, the, quote, The Holy Ghost got a hold of him, that is Nehemiah Gordon, end quote. Has the Holy Spirit been given to unbelievers? Does the Spirit, according to the apostolic scriptures, identifiably affect unbelievers? Okay, well... Um, I've been working on logical fallacies uh, recently uh, for my own benefit, but uh, just to rehash some of the uh, uh, training I got in my undergraduate studies on logic. Uh, one of the logical fallacies is that just because something looks like something else, that they're the same. Right? Okay. I mean, you can hold up a pitcher of uh, water and a pitcher of uh, denatured alcohol, and uh, uh, they may look exactly alike. Well, they're not the same. Okay. We do remember that in the time of the, uh, of the Exodus, in, in Shemot, in the book of Exodus, the sorcerers, which is really uh, how the Hebrew term could be translated, the sorcerers were able to reproduce the very signs that Moses did, right? Threw his uh, uh, rod on the ground, it became a snake, picked it back up by the till, it became his, his staff again. So, uh, do we think that uh, Satan, Hasatan, and uh, his uh, evil uh, demonic associates uh, can mimic? Of course they can. Um, and uh, I, I, I know this to be a fact. <laughs> a, uh, an acquaintance, I could say a friend, I haven't seen him for a long time, who grew up in Baghdad uh, and came to the States, and uh, he actually uh, took, he took uh, Hebrew from me uh, in one of our classes, and he made the point that um, 
that he was at a, uh, and I'm please, I'm not putting down my charismatic brothers and sisters, but he was at a charismatic meeting in which they were uh, shouting and jumping and the and laughing and so forth as uh, apparently uh, supposedly a body of their confession under the power of the Spirit of God. And he made this comment to me. He said, when I was in Baghdad, there were these particular uh, uh, Muslims. Uh, they were teachers, but they were a certain sect. They had these small knives, small daggers, and they would uh, they would dance and dance and dance and put themselves into a frenzy. Then they would stick this into their skin and pull it back out. And it wouldn't bleed, and everybody would say this was the this was uh, evidence of of uh, a pagan god by the name of Allah uh, that that his spirit was there. And so the idea that you have these phenomena, uh, they could just as well be produced by demons as by the spirit of God. And does the spirit of God indwell or uh, bless the the teachings uh, and so forth of unbelievers? Well, we can't put the spirit of God in a box because God is God. He can do what he wants. By and large, when we see the Spirit of God giving uh, gifts of his presence, it's when he is pleased with uh, that which is uh, taking place. For instance, the, ver- the visible glory of God filled the temple when uh, Solomon was doing the dedication, and no one could stand. Right? But, okay, hang on just a sec. But the, I think the question would be more to the idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Can the Holy Spirit indwell, does the Holy Spirit, not can it, does the Holy Spirit indwell unbelievers? No. The Holy Spirit does not indwell unbelievers. Indwell in the sense that we find it in the apostolic scriptures, particularly is a, uh, a, a integral part of what it means to be regenerated. That is, brought to new life, given faith, confessing Yeshua as Lord. We find this consistently in the uh, book of Acts, where this was portrayed as the beginning of this outpouring of the Spirit of God. So no, the Spirit of God cannot, will not indwell someone uh, who has not confessed Yeshua. Okay, so Sarah Wallace says, uh, my question is not about the argument, and that this is in the chat room, uh, the argument that is between uh, Bart Ehrman and uh, James White. My question for Tim is, is carbon dating effective or very accurate on ancient texts? Has it been used accurately with the New Testament text? Before uh, you respond to that, I would s- simply say that uh, carbon dating in terms of text can can be somewhat accurate, but that's not the only thing that's used to date the texts. For instance, uh, Daniel Wallace, when he dates the text, he uh, he uses all sorts of different methods to try to place it within uh, carbon dating being one of them. But that only gets him within a ballpark. It doesn't, you know, that might get get him within two hundred years. But uh, then then uh, you know all these different aspects of language, what you words are used, and this goes back. One of the reasons that I'm bringing this up is because this goes back to the whole argument that I had with. Uh, with uh, the Copper Scroll Project and 119 Ministries. The idea that the, that the Copper Scroll goes back to the time of Jeremiah is simply ridiculous. And the reason why is because we can look at the language, and the language that is used was not being used in the time of Jeremiah. It didn't, didn't come about until long after that, hundreds of years after that. And so to be able to look at that text and say this goes back to Jeremiah does not take into account the, the, rest, of the, uh, the rest of the factors. Um, it's just a hypothesis by, by uh, you know, the Copper Scroll Project. 
Uh, anyway, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on carbon dating? Carbon dating is, uh, is affected by a lot of different things, and in some cases it can be plus or minus 500 years. In other cases, it can be plus or minus, you know, uh, two or three hundred years, or it can even be plus or minus a thousand years, depending upon thousands of years, depending upon how old the item is that uh, from which they're taking the the sample. Uh, the other thing is is that uh, the medium on which the the text is being written is it leather? Well, if it's leather, how long did it uh, uh, exist before it was written upon? They're carbon dating the leather. They're not carbon dating the ink. Um, and even so, the ink could have been made in large quantities and sat for a long time. Uh, so it's not, it's not very accurate at all. Far more accurate is um, the um, uh, spelling, uh, the way letters are made, and so forth. I was just recently thumbing through Chomsky's uh, little book on the history of Hebrew, and he was using... Um, medieval English texts and um, more modern English texts as an example of how language and spelling changes. And when you try to read a, a Middle English or Early English text, it's almost impossible. Uh, the words are different, the spelling is, well, the words are the same, but the spelling is so different that one can hardly recognize the words. And so the same thing occurs in all languages. It occurred in Arabic. Of course, the Arabic that the Quran was originally written in um, that's a whole other story. But, uh, well, if, if in fact the tradition is true that, that Muhammad was the author of the Quran, we know that it can't be earlier than the 600s because that's when he lived. So, um, uh, you know, in terms of dating the Quran, I don't think there's a, a huge issue. Uh, I don't know. Is someone trying to say that it's uh, that it's older than Muhammad? I would have to get back to the... To the I, actually, I think what I'd have to do is actually look at the... Uh, Look right. at the at the YouTube video that was posted. Okay, let's move on though. I want to I want to move to. We have a couple other uh, interesting questions that were posted online for us. Uh, this should be an easy one. Why or maybe not? I shouldn't say that. This this shouldn't be an easy one. Maybe this will be somewhat of a quick answer though. Why did the Lord tell David that he would uh, have given David all of Saul's wives if he didn't sin with Bathsheba? Okay, um, let's see. That's in Second Samuel 12, um, looking it up. Um, and yes, it's in Second Samuel uh, 12, verse 7 and 8. Uh, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Remember the story. <laughs> you're the man. You're the man. You're, you're <laughs> the guy that did this terrible thing. After David, uh, he used the idea of a, sh uh, a man who had a lamb. You remember the story. Uh, remember that in the ancient Near East, the king was viewed as a shepherd. You often see... Uh, portrayal of king uh, with a staff in his hand, a shepherd's staff in his hand, uh, not only, I mean, in, in the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East. He says, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, the Hebrew says, into your bosom, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Now, that's the, that's the clincher verse, isn't it? And, well, first of all, um, uh, how many wives did uh, Saul have? Well, according to what we read in the scriptures, uh, he, uh, Saul had but one wife, uh, right? Ahino'am in the English. Um, and, 
And then he had a concubine, but the concubine, according to 2 Samuel 3, 7, was, uh, uh, was taken uh, and, uh, by uh, uh, Abner. So, uh, because uh, uh, Ishbosheth says to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Which is a way of saying you've taken her for yourself. Okay, so, uh, so so what does it mean then? He uh, he would have given you. He said, "I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care." Now that's the NASB translation. I think that's probably the uh, the, the right interpretation. However, when a king took over, he was he he became responsible for the uh, the family and the, the harem uh, of the of his predecessor. Especially, um, well, uh, if the throne was taken by way of military, um, then he would he would have the right to do with the, with the family as he wished. In the ancient Near East, many of the conquering kings killed off the former king's family, and 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 uh, so that there would be no trace and no one heir to the throne. In this case, I think it was simply that he that David was to take care of of Saul's wife, whether he had relations with her or not. The text doesn't say. And even whether he agreed to, it doesn't say. He says, I've given you the house of Israel and Judah, meaning what? These are very broad terms. I've put you as king over the whole nation. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you like this and like this, literally, is what the, the Hebrew says. It says, kahina v'kahina, like this and like this. It doesn't mean I would have given you more of exactly the same things as I've listed before. He couldn't have given him more than Israel and Judah. He was only the king over Israel and Judah. So it means, in, it's in a very general uh, phrase, it means, I would have given you more that you asked for, of course, understood, if these were things that God intended to give him. So the idea that this is a, uh, a proof for polygamy and sanctioned, uh, polygamy sanctioned by God simply doesn't stand if you read the text and look a little bit at the Hebrew behind the text. Okay, I want to go, let's, I want to play some uh, sound clips because that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so this is the question. Will you please respond to Steve Berkson's teaching, be, quote, beware of false prophets, identifying the anti-Messiah. Now I've pulled two quotes here. I will, before we uh, jump into this, say, because of this, and because of my listening to this, I contacted Mr. Berkson and asked some clarifying questions. And while I play this first clip, I will try to find that email. Um, so here is, and actually, I had never heard of Mr. Berkson before or his ministry. And uh, so it was kind of new uh, listening to his teaching for me. So I'm not exactly sure where he stands on a lot of different things. I I wouldn't I can't tell you whether or not he's sacred name. I can't tell you whether or not he's uh, whether he's two house. I I'm not familiar with him and or and or his ministry. And uh, one of the things that I noticed on his website is that there's no there's no theological stance. Uh, I, there's no page to look at what their theological stance is, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing here or there. I you know it's just. An observation. So here is the first clip that I pulled, and this is at about an hour and 30 minutes into this teaching. The greatest setup of all time has been perpetrated on all of the world. That setup has been perpetrated and pushed on us for about 2,000 years now. 
The setup is to lead you away from Yeshua and the Torah. That setup is Jesus Christ. That is your anti-Messiah. When I first was going to do this teaching, I said, what are you going to teach me? I'm going to tell everybody Jesus is the Antichrist. I'm not saying Yeshua. The false fraud. We're talking about fraudulent. Remember we were earlier talking about fraudulent? The fraud that has been perpetrated on the world is the Jesus that you've been sold, who is peace, love, wonderful, hippie freak, and eat whatever you want, and don't worry, everything's great, and don't worry about what my father said to do. You, did, you know what I'm saying? This is the fraud. Okay, so I want to be clear. What he goes on to say is that the fraud is that he's not saying that Yeshua is the Antichrist. He's saying that Jesus is the Antichrist. And he goes on to give this analogy that there's going to be a false, false Messiah. Uh, in other words, the Antichrist, and that, or a false, false Messiah. And then this Jesus Christ is going to come and defeat this false, false Messiah. And everyone, even believers, are going to say, oh, look, it's Jesus. He's, he's the Savior. And that's how so many believers... Are going to um, are going to hear uh, are are going to uh, turn to this false messiah. So that's what he's saying, okay. Um, but as as crazy as all that might sound, okay, we really get into some of the uh, even more craziness in the second clip. And did you want to respond to that first, or did you want me to play the second clip? Let's play them together, and then we can okay. respond. Here's the here's the second clip. The world has been being brainwashed, set up, indoctrinated, getting ready for this guy. What do you hear within Christian music and in the world? It's all about Jesus, not about the Father. We worship Jesus, we love Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we thank Jesus. Everything's Jesus. Am I wrong? Okay, that's right, right? That's the way it is. Because he's being exalted about everything. What did Yeshua say? Don't come to me. I want to point you to him. It's not about me. It's about my Father. Is that what you see in Christianity? They are all about this, this cultish, just raptured sort of thinking. They're just over this, you know, adoring of Jesus. There's no thought of the Father. There's no thought of the commandments. There's no thought of any of that stuff. It's Jesus did everything for you. Jesus, it's all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the setup. And if you can't break out of that mindset, you could fall for that setup. Because I'm telling you right now, He's coming. Okay, everyone's going on the internet. Rabbi Bergson said Jesus is coming. Yeah, he is. But he ain't Mashiach. He's the false Mashiach. He's, he's, he's a putting a, it's like taking an ugly costume, a real pretty good looking costume, and sticking it over Mashiach. They dressed him up in this false thing, and they paraded him around, but it's not Mashiach. Mashiach is the one we read about here that loves the law, teaches the Torah. He's the legalist. He did everything his father said. He only wants you to focus on his father. He doesn't want any attention for himself. That's not the Jesus we're sold. Okay, let's stop. Um, so <laughs> there's a couple of things that really caught my attention in this second one. Um, it's, you know, he says it's all, you know, it's all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in the Christian church. It's not about the Father um, and all this kind of stuff. And so to me, it sounded like he was, uh, it sounded like he was giving, like he, he doesn't believe the issue is divine. Like he doesn't believe in the divinity of the Messiah. So I contacted, I sent, the, I sent them an email through the website, and uh, someone named Shell wrote me back. She CC'd Steve, on, Steve Bergson on this, uh, 
on this email. So I assume that whatever she says, he is sanctioning because he saw it and didn't correct uh, her at all. Okay, so this is the this is the the email that she sent back to me as to what Rabbi Berkson believes in the relationship of Yeshua relative to Yahweh. Her words, not mine. I recommend that you watch his series on Do You Know the Father and the Son, beginning with part one. And she gives a link. And I will say that I went and I started watching this. It does not sound at all to me. In fact, I would say that he is very firm on the deity of the Messiah, according to what I heard in this teaching that he gave. So I'm not sure why in the world he he would say anything about we put too much emphasis on on Jesus. Well, I think he's making a difference in, in his terminology. When he says Jesus, he means a false Messiah. When he says Yeshua, he means the true Messiah. I think that's that's... And and not that I don't dis, disagree with what he's saying, because I most certainly do. But I think there is a caution for us, and we ought to be careful. We see this happening uh, in various wings of the Christian church throughout the uh, history of Christianity. There are some who put a total emphasis upon the Father to the exclusion almost of, this, uh, of, of Yeshua and the Ruach, or the Spirit. Others, like the, the, like the Jesus-only movement, which is more modern, um, believe that, uh, you know, God shows up in various ways, and he finally showed up in Yeshua, and that's the last, uh, that's his last revelation of himself. So, and then, of course, there are those in the, in the more, uh, I don't know what term to use, but maybe uh, over, overly zealous charismatic movement who put almost all emphasis upon the, the Ruach, upon the Spirit. So there, there can be a, a, an, an, an imbalance, okay, Maybe that's what he's trying to do. But when, when you know, he gives the idea that in the clip that you uh, that, that we heard, that the emphasis should be put upon the Father, not upon the Son. Now, you know, he says that Yeshua came and says, it's not about me. Well, wait a minute. If you read the book of John, it clearly is about Yeshua, right? Because, for instance, he says... Uh, in, in John 14, he said, um, uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He's not saying, you know, uh, and he says, if you ask anything in my name, uh, then, then I will do it. Um, well, what does he mean by that? Ask in my name. Wait, what is his name? Paul tells us that there was a name given to him above every name that at every at that the name of Yeshua every knee will bow. So to say that one cannot pray to Yeshua, speak to Yeshua, that's absolutely wrong. He is one with the Father in the mystery of that. We can't unravel that. We don't want to unravel it. But in the mystery of it, Yeshua is Yod Hey Vav Hey. He is the one who, uh, and Paul says that he should receive preeminence in everything. Right? Uh, let me grab that verse while I'm thinking about it. It's in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 1, I believe. And so, you know, the idea that um, that uh, somehow uh, Yeshua takes a secondary uh, oh, yeah, emphasis to, to, in, to the in, Father. In, in, yeah. To the Father. It's just, it can't be, can't be uh, accepted. I got. Uh, I got. I, I want to play this this one part of this clip again. Okay, let's listen here. I, I think I rewound it to the right place, but uh, maybe not. I might have to find it. Hang on. Here. Listen to this. Loves the law, teaches the Torah. He's the legalist. He did everything his father. 
Okay, so did you hear that? <laughs> let, let, me, let, let, me, uh, let me play this one back a little farther. Here we go. Traded him around, but it's not Mashiach. Mashiach is the one we read about here that loves the law, teaches the Torah. He's the legalist. He did everything. He's the legalist. So I, I asked for clarification on what, uh, what, what was meant by Yeshua, the true Messiah, is the legalist. And this shell person who uh, cc'd uh, Mr. Bergson writes back, she says, with regards to your question pertaining to legalism, rabbis, her words, not mine, rabbis' definition of legalism is to, quote, and she puts this in quote marks, to do everything legally according to the law, end quote. Therefore, a legalist is someone that does everything according to the law legally. Yeshua, then, by definition, is a legalist because he did everything legally according to the laws given by Yahweh, her words, not mine. Unfortunately, the term of legalist is used negatively when it really is simply living in accordance to the laws. Here's the problem with uh, whoever this shell person is and her quote, I'm guessing, from Mr. Berkson is that that's absolutely not the definition of legalism. Legalism, by definition, the definition of legalism, and I would uh, encourage anyone to open an English dictionary and look up the word legalism, the, the definition of legalism is to gain salvation through works. Mm-hmm. So the reason that it, that it has been given this, uh, uh, this bad name, or a, what does she say, by uh, uh, legalist, uh, legally, according to, uh, unfortunately, the term of legalist is used negatively. The reason it's used negatively is because you don't understand the meaning of it. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I'm sorry that to be harsh here, but uh, you know, it's sad to me that people use these uh, these terms, and you know, in the background, you hear these people saying, "Yes, yeah, absolutely, praise the Lord." What are you talking about? Yeshua is not a legalist, and to teach so is certainly a heretical doctrine. I'm not saying that Mr. Berkson is is teaching heresy necessarily in this area because I think that he just doesn't understand what the word legalist means. Um, so maybe ignorance is to blame here uh, in terms of this one specific word. But the point is you can't call Yeshua a legalist. He's not a legalist. He taught salvation by faith through him alone. Right. And, well, we have the same problem with his differentiating between Jesus and Yeshua. Yeah. If you were to ask, have asked my father, your grandfather of blessed memory, uh, to explain who Jesus was, he would he would not have given the definition that that this uh, teacher is giving, uh, uh, and the same thing is true. I mean, frankly, well, maybe this is nitpicky, but he said for two thousand years there's been this perpetrated lie about this Jesus. Well, I think two thousand years includes Paul, uh, you know, includes uh, uh, John, you know, right in the at the end of the first century, uh, writing the, the Revelation and so forth. So, um, well, at any rate, I was off a book. It's not in Ephesians, it's in Colossians one eighteen. He, speaking of Yeshua, is also the head of the body, the ecclesia, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't understand how this... Uh, uh, what's his name, Berkson, uh, Mr. Berkson, I don't understand how he can make these statements unless, is it possible that he's never read Paul? I mean, I, I, I don't know, but uh, it would seem that he must have read Paul and, and know this. I think his emphasis is that he's trying to say 
um, he's trying to make an overly abundant statement about the the value of Torah and so forth. And I, I just want to again say this. Uh, I hope uh, maybe this maybe this will raise some hackles. I don't know, but let's be very honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters. Those of our uh, our brothers and sisters who are in the in the mainline Christian church, if they indeed are uh, holding to an evangelical understanding of the gospel and faith uh, and salvation by faith alone through God's grace, uh, the indwelling of the ruach and so forth, then they are keeping a, a great amount of Torah. Uh, let, let us not try to build a dividing wall between those of us who perhaps are more consistent with regard to the outward signs of Torah, uh, at least more consistent as we see it, um, and make a, a wall between us and those who are uh, consistently living what even Yeshua might have said are the more weightier matters of the Torah. So we have to be very careful that we don't go pointing fingers, and I think that's maybe what Mr. Berkson's doing. I know that I'm uh, missing out on the uh, on the soundboard today. I'm sorry. Uh, legalism. And on the twist of a word. Everything changes. So uh, I'm being, uh, people are calling for different sound effects in the chat room. And that's because I'm actually reading the chat room uh, and trying to basically administer this whole uh, show all at the same time. Okay. Um, let's move on then. Um, so <laughs> last week, last week we talked about the word gear. One of our listeners feels that we are being arrogant in the view that ger does not mean proselyte, since many lexicons cite this as the definition. Why are you, my father Tim, why are you so confident about your stance on the word ger and that it doesn't mean proselyte? And what would you mean by the word proselyte? Okay, well, um, uh, whoever this... uh a person is who wrote this in. Can we send him a copy of my fellow heirs? We already did. Okay, um, because I, that would be the longer answer. So I'll give a shorter one. First, first of all, the word uh, proselytos is an old Greek word, which existed a long time before uh, the Septuagint was tr- uh, the translation of the Septuagint. Okay, um, uh, and proselytos is one of the words that's used regularly to translate gear. Okay. Now, um, I would be, now I didn't listen to the show last week, uh, Caleb, so I'm not uh, up on it, but um, my position is that uh, in the first century, in the time of Paul, there was some kind of ceremony by which the the leaders of the Jewish communities uh, were willing to grant legal Jewish status to a Gentile if that Gentile went through a particular ceremony. Now, we're, we're not certain what that ceremony would have been or how how detailed it was or whatever. Okay, hang on just a sec. I'm going to play the, the role of Rob here because I think that Rob would, would interject that uh, you're making a broad statement about communities. So was it one specific community? Was it larger communities? Each community had a different... Uh, uh, each community had maybe different rules yeah. or whatever, okay. right? I, I would be more than, yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. We don't know. 
But what we sense, uh, particularly when we're reading Paul, is that when he went from various communities to other communities, he came to some communities that were troubled by this. And the community in Galatia was one of them. Okay, exactly what they were being told they had to do. I think circumcision was a, a, a prime element, uh, at least in some communities, in order for a Gentile male to be given uh, Jewish status. Okay, so uh, all that to say, the term proselutos in the uh, proselutos in the Greek, therefore, gained a new meaning, or an added meaning. We have papyri that have been found, for instance, uh, down in, in Egypt uh, that uses the term simply as foreigner. Simply as foreigner. So, as I've maybe said too many times, the words don't have meaning in and of themselves. They have meaning only in the context. When you read Gare in the Hebrew Bible, you have to determine what it means in context. When it says, for instance, to Israel, that you shall treat the gear among you uh, with with love, with carefulness, because you yourself were gerim in Egypt. This cannot mean convert, right? I mean, Moses would not have said to the to the Israelites, "You were you became converts in Egypt." It meant you were foreigners. Gear in its primary uh, sense, and in uh, this is across the board in a number of other Semitic languages besides. Northwest Semitic uh, Hebrew, um, uh, you have uh, a similar thing going on in Ugaritic and other languages, that ger simply means someone who is out of their own country, therefore do not have the right as a citizen or as a member of the country in which they are in or the government in which is over them. And so they're at a disadvantage. And sometimes ger is simply used that way. Ger sometimes is used and coupled with uh, orphan and widow. Okay, so the idea that you you know here's what I would challenge uh, this person with, I would simply say, you know, as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. So show me, give me any indication, historical, literary, uh, text, whether it's an engraving, whether it's uh, uh, whatever it may be, show me anywhere where a Gentile was given Jewish status, legal Jewish status before the time of the Maccabees. I think it's clear that in the time of the Maccabees, this began, you know, we have, if we can take the, the book of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, as having some historical reality, uh, there were those who were forced to circum be circumcised or to be viewed as enemies to the Maccabean revolt. Okay, so a Jewish man who was uncircumcised, they said to him, in short, either become circumcised or you're our enemy. So I think that the person, uh, now the person that, that uh, wrote this uh, email to me also stated that w our definition of conversion might be different because uh, uh, this person says that uh, the Abraham converted, they're not talking about a ritual of Judaism, whatever. Uh, so I'll give the person that fact. But what, what, uh, what I think this word proselytos and proselyte has come to mean is someone who goes through a ritual of conversion. Listen to this. This is from, um, oh man, this is from the MJRC, also known as the Messianic Jewish Rabbinical Council. I have major problems with this. Number one, who gave these guys the authority to be a rabbinical council? 
you know, I don't think Messianic Judaism as a whole got together and said, hey, let's get these guys to be our rabbinical council. That's number one. Are you one. kidding me? You couldn't get Ma Messianic Judaism together as a whole. Uh, exactly. They, you know, nobody, no one would be living. Well, and the other thing is, is how many alphabet names do we really need? The MJRC, <laughs> the UMJC, the MJW. I mean, come on, guys. Get a little bit more original. Um, so this is from a uh, something by a guy named Dr. Richard Nickel. It's called The Case for Conversion Welcoming Non-Jews into Messianic Jewish Spaces. In my personal opinion, and this is probably going to uh, get me some flack, in my personal opinion, this piece reeks of anti-Gentile. Uh, I don't even know what to say. It's just anti-Gentile. The whole piece is anti-Gentile. So um, down a little ways, there's a header that says, Why should Messianic Judaism offer conversion to Gentiles in our midst? And this, by the way, is in last week's show notes. So if you uh, want to find a link to this, you can find it in last week's show notes. There are no show notes this week, by the way. Uh, quote, What exactly do we mean by conversion? Conversion is the means whereby a non-Jew moves fully into the status of a Jew among the community of Israel with all the privileges and responsibilities accompanying such a, a fundamental change of religious identity. Why is this so important to a maturing Messianic Judaism? I offer three basic reasons. Offering conversion is a matter of integrity, a matter of love, and a matter of fidelity to the overarching plan of God as revealed in Scripture. Let us begin where many Messianic Jews agree. Messianic Judaism is indeed a Judaism and not merely a, pr a primitive form of Christianity. When Messianic Jewish leaders wear tefillin and tallit, we make this point. We are Judaism. When we have Passover seders as an uh, when we have Passover seders, an institution not specifically commanded in the Bible, we declare ourselves a Judaism. When we perform a marriage under the chuppah, we do so because we claim to be Judaism. When we celebrate, okay, he goes on and on and on. Okay, uh, here is where the matter of integrity becomes so central. In our congregation, we have uh, large numbers of non-Jews. In fact, in many Messianic synago Jewish synagogues, the majority of people are not Jewish. Yet, we invite these good folks to participate in any and all aspects of our congregational life, treating them as though they were Jews. We do so in part because we don't want to hurt the feelings of people who make large contributions in our congregations. But an unintended effect of our inclusiveness is that we trivialize our most basic claims. We inadvertently teach that being Jewish merely means participating regularly in a Messianic Jewish synagogue. Should others respect a movement which so undermines an identity which our grandparents and our ancestors often died for response well i mean i mean it's just amazing first of all uh experience has proven that they do not give the privilege to the non-jew in their synagogues um this it's ridiculous to have him have said that anyway but i think that was written numbers of years ago things have drastically changed as i think we all know that in many congregations that are involved with the umjc and some of the mja and other uh groups uh you're you're not allowed if you're a gentile for instance to be called to the torah your children cannot have bar and bat mitzvah uh mitzvahs you you uh, there are certain things you know you they do not officiate at a Brit Milah, circumcision, if you're not Jewish, and so forth and so on. Okay, so that, number one there. Uh, number two... <laughs> Wait, hang on. Adam, Adam says, how magnanimous of them to allow non-Jews to join in. <laughs> yeah. You keep yeah. going. Right. Uh, 
it undermines the very promise that God made to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it, the blessing uh, that uh, Paul interprets that in Galatians is the very blessing of, of Yeshua and all that he brings. So um, the idea of Jewish identity, we're all for it. But Jewish identity and, and uh, Gentile uh, heritage, and I'm not talking about pagan heritage, I'm talking about ethnic or people group heritage, if someone would like to be a little more clear on that, uh, that is required in order for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled. All the nations will be blessed, okay? So uh, this idea that there needs to be a conversion, and, and Caleb, back to what you had uh, said before that clip, that maybe this person who wrote this note is talking about conversion more on the idea of not a ceremony. Well, if if one says, you know, have you converted to the faith of Abraham, I would say yes. That would be true of a Jew as well as a Gentile. A Jew has to go through the same kind of conversion, which is the work of the Spirit of God within the heart to, to grant faith and, uh, and to uh, begin the process of sanctification. Okay, sure, but uh, that does not give a Gentile Jewish status, and it doesn't give a Jew a Gentile status. And by the way, there's no status for Jew and Gentile. There's only status in Yeshua. That is, we have the right to come boldly before the throne of grace because we are in him, not because of who our grandparents were or because uh, of who our great-grandparents were. And furthermore, our privilege uh, to obey him is not based upon our people group uh, association. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I have I made it a habit, and I've done this, well, hopefully consistently, but I've tried to do it consistently, when I put a tallit katan on in the morning or when I put my tallit on uh, when I'm praying or when I uh, don tefillin or whatever it may be, and these are traditions, right? They're not anything that is uh, is specifically commanded in the Torah, wearing tzitzit, yes, but it doesn't tell us how. But when I use these traditions, which we have gained from the traditions of uh, various Judaisms, I say, Lord, thank you for allowing me to obey you and allowing me to be a witness for you, and thank you that you have brought me into Yeshua, and I want him to be seen in my life. You don't have to be part of a people group to pray that prayer. You have to be simply in Yeshua. And last thing I'll say about the clip, again, um, Dr. Nichols, I don't know if he's a doctor, but I think he is, um, he continues to, to talk as though there's a monolithic Judaism. Which Judaism is he talking about? If he's talking about Reformed Judaism, they could care less about how you wear your tefillin. You know, when they go to synagogue, whatever time that might be, they have no problem going to the restaurant on Saturday afternoon and having a pork sandwich. So when he talks about, you know, that we're, we're uh, disgracing our ancestors, he has lumped all Judaisms together and one would be remiss to do that in just the same way to say that Christianity is all the same. I dare say that, uh, you know, the Christians who are evangelical would not want to be lumped together with the Mormons who also call themselves Christians. So it's just an, an illustration. It's not a monolithic Judaism, and certainly Messianic Judaism, so-called, is not monolithic. Okay, we got one last, we hit an hour, so uh, let's, uh, let's finish with a question that could take another hour. Um, so... And this question was actually came worded completely differently and came with some clips, which I didn't take the time to actually uh, uh, listen to and, and uh, grab clips from. So I reworded the question to, to sound like this. 
Can you explain what it means to be under law and under grace? Well, I think uh, there's a simple answer to this, actually. It means under the rule of... Now, what does it mean to be under the rule of law? It means that if you break the rules, you're condemned. Isn't that what the law says? You know, I mean, there's a penalty, right? Okay? So, we can lump this under one simple word. It's the curse of the law. The soul that sins must die. All right. Okay, so those who are under Torah are under the condemnation, under the rule of law. We don't obey Torah because if we're afraid that if we don't, we're going to be condemned. The Torah cannot condemn us. Why? Because the curse of the law has been laid upon our Savior. He who knew no sin became a sin offering for us. He took the curse of the law upon him, as Paul says in Galatians, as the Torah says, cursed is he who is hung on a tree, right? He takes that phrase and makes that clear. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in the apostolic scriptures where under law is found. I, I just grabbed the commentary on Romans. Um, if you have that, it's uh, the first volume, page 152. And if you if you say if you simply uh, in your mind paraphrase under the under the uh, condemnation of the Torah all of these read as they should for sin shall not be master over you for you are not under the curse of the Torah but under grace the curse of the Torah has been taken away you no longer obey out of fear of being condemned you now obey out of love for the one who has redeemed you Romans six fifteen what then Shall we sin because we are not under the condemnation of the Torah, but we're under grace? No, of course not. And he goes on to say why. We've been made new. We have risen to newness of life. 1 Corinthians 9.20 To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. Wait a minute. Paul was a Jew. He didn't have to become as a Jew. It means that he, was, he, he took upon himself, when it was not contrary to the Scriptures, that which would allow him to have uh, a face-to-face -face conversations with various Jewish groups to those who were under the Torah in other words to those who were unbelievers to those who were under the condemnation of the Torah as under the condemnation of the Torah though not being myself under the condemnation of the Torah so that I might win those who were under the condemnation of the Torah he says I went to them as one who myself needed to be redeemed and was redeemed all right. What about Galatians 3.23? But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the condemnation of the Torah, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. In other words, now, it doesn't mean that faith didn't come when Abraham was there. It means faith came to him. He didn't go looking for faith. Faith came to him because God came to him. And ultimately, uh, uh, Yeshua is a metonym for faith as the one in whom we put our faith. Just three more. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the condemnation of the Torah. Is that true? <laughs> well, if we understand that phrase to mean born with regard to, with a goal to, taking upon himself the curse of the Torah, the answer is yes. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who were lost. His coming was to take upon himself the curse of the Torah for all of the elect. And then in Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who want to be under the curse of the law, do you not listen to the Torah? Those of you who want to say, the Torah is how I get 
favor with God. Don't you understand what the Torah actually says, that if you don't keep it perfectly, if you don't keep it the way you should, you're condemned. And finally, Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Ruach, you are not under the curse of the Torah. You're not under the condemnation of the Torah. If the Ruach is active in your life, this is proof positive that you are in the Messiah, that the Messiah has become a curse, has taken that curse for you, so that you will never, ever, ever fall under the condemnation of the Torah. So under grace, under the rule of grace, which is what? Obeying God because we love him. If you love me, Yeshua said, you'll keep my commandments. And this is what the Shema means, right? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You and I feel a wonderful, loving obligation to God because of what he's done for us in his son, Yeshua. Okay, so Sarah says, what does those who are raised under the law mean? Uh, some of those new Yeshua, and Gary actually posted right before you said it, Gary posted the Galatians 4, 4 through 5 passage. And Wallace says, yes, so if Yeshua was born under the law, then under the law cannot mean those who are not saved. Perhaps Paul uses the same phrase in different manners depending on the context. And that's what you're saying, right? So when it says Yeshua was born... No, I'm saying that Yeshua was born with... He was born in order to take the condemnation of the law. That's why he came. So that's why Galatians 4.4 says he was born under the law. Right. He was born He was born with the purpose of taking the condemnation of the Torah. And the unsaved people are under the condemnation of the Torah. What, what will be the judgment that they stand before? Well, obviously, the ultimate judgment will be you did not receive Yeshua as, as your Messiah and Savior. But you're condemned by the, the, the Torah. Right? The soul that sins will die. Okay, so if if the Torah is what, you know, Paul himself says that the Torah is what gives death its sting. It's the Torah that gives sin its power. Why? Because the Torah is the, has the condemnation attached to sin. What did Yeshua do? He came and he took that condemnation upon himself for all who would be saved. All right. <laughs> Wallace is gracious. Um, okay, so, uh, I mean, we have plenty more questions, but I think that we've uh, come close to the end of our time. Anything else you want to add before we go? Well, it's been fun sitting in. Sometime with the three of us should do it, because then Rob and I could go at it uh, when he disagreed with me, and, and maybe he would set me straight on some things. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, we'll have to get you on, and we'll talk about conversion <laughs> conversion in the first century. That'd be great. Um, all right. Well, uh, I hope that everybody enjoyed it. If you have more questions for, well, anyone, me, Rob, my dad, you can send them to chag at torresource.com. You can get a hold of Rob R. Van Hoff at torresource.com. Next week, who knows what we're talking about. Uh, it'll be something fun. Um, but I hope that uh, in this program, some of your questions were answered. Maybe some light was shed on some uh, new, uh, some old uh, controversies that you had in your own mind. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, big thank you to you, Dad, for uh, coming on the show. And we will be back next week with Rob Van Hoff, of course. But until then, we hope that uh, this show has helped to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.